I see innovation as truly a factor of the number of attempts and tries you can have and of technology that is just now possible. In, in principle, I argue that no one needs permission to innovate. You don't need permission to think about new problems to solve, new ways to solve existing problems, new markets, new customers, new opportunities, new ways to add value. Welcome to the Human Insight Podcast, where we help you bridge the empathy gap to bring you a valuable new understanding of some of the most innovative ideas and trends shaping the future of business and customer experience. Hi, everyone. I'm Janelle Estes, Chief Insights Officer at User Testing. And I'm Andy McMillan, CEO at User Testing. And today we have invited Christian Idioti, partner at Silicon Valley Product Group. Thanks so much for joining us today, Christian, and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Janelle and Andy. Glad to be here. Awesome. So you're currently a partner at uh, the Silicon Valley Product Group, but prior to that, you ran product at Merrill, Snag a Job, Career Builder. You're also a board member, and you recently started Innovate Africa. So We've got a lot going on. Tell us a bit about your role today at uh, Silicon Valley Product Group, what you're focused on, and maybe even what keeps you up at night. Yeah, um, it's not been a busy season at all. Uh, look, SVPG or Silicon Valley Product Group has always been focused on learning and curating the best techniques that the most innovative companies in the world and most innovative teams use to decide what to do. And we share those techniques with companies with the hope that we can convince them that they can work in a similar manner or even better. Uh, so today I spend my time coaching product leaders and product executives on how to achieve an empowered environment to allow their teams to meet their objectives. Um, I also spend my time running workshops and training for product teams. So it's been an absolutely fulfilling opportunity to constantly learn, to share, to contribute to meaningful transformations at the individual and corporate level. You know, as I worked with several teams around the world, I realized that uh, I wasn't as deliberate as I would like to be with meaningful change in Africa, and uh, which I'm, I was born and, and I grew up in. So I, I started Innovate Africa uh, because I saw an opportunity to use technology to tackle most of the pressing issues in Africa, like unemployment and poverty, healthcare and security. Um, it doesn't keep me up at night yet, <laughs> but it does challenge how easy I go to sleep when I see unemployment as high as 40% in some countries or millions of people living in poverty or limited access to healthcare, the impacts of corruption or poor governance or poor education in this parts of the world. So uh, those are the things kind of top of mind for me today as I work with teams and as I work for meaningful change in, in parts like Africa. That's great. It's helpful to, to have that background. And um, it's amazing what you're doing with Innovate Africa, really. I think that's uh, fantastic. And your work too at SVPG, I mean, that is a uh, premier organization. And it's it's awesome that you're able to um, you know, work with teams and, and product executives at that level. But I would love to hear a little bit more about your journey as a product executive and sort of how you got to Silicon Valley Product Group. Yeah, I, I always joke with teams like, we all did it the same way, right? We all went and got a bachelor's degree in product, our you know, master's degree in user design and a PhD <laughs> in engineering. 
you know, and it's like, does that know what everybody did? And I, I kind of tell people, well, I was pre-med in college, you know, I, I was, uh, you know, I came from Africa to college in the States and I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to solve heart problems like cancer or HIV and, and um, things I had seen plague communities for time. And that was always what I had dreamed and aspired to be. And and I decided to take a year off uh, before studying medical school to travel the world. And I kind of joke, I'm still traveling the world. Um, I, so I never went back to medical school after that uh, because I got broke. And I, uh, in that year off, and decided to uh, work to make money prior to going to medical school. I actually started my career in sales. I did door-to-door sales. And uh, there was a time I was selling Visa MasterCard door-to-door, going to businesses and knocking on doors to convince them to take credit card machines. And, and I had an amazingly successful career doing that. And I was like, why go back to medical school? Sales is great. Uh, but I was fortunate enough to um, join a company, Career Builder, and they had a, a competition where anybody in the company could submit a business idea. And uh, if you won the competition, you kind of got significant funding to run the business and you become a CEO of your own business. And, you know, if you feel like you make it even to the top 20, you get like a $5,000 prize. And I was like, look, I'm young. I'm like 23 years old. Like, why not try to make $5,000? Like, I don't have an idea, but I'll think of something. And probably a day before the competition ended, I talked with a lot of people, came up with an idea and, and I, I got shortlisted, made into the top 20, and I thought I was done. But, you know, you just keep going. And so it's almost like American Idol style, you know, know who wants to be on stage presenting and defending an idea. And anyway, to accelerate our story, I, I um, end up winning this competition. I am 23 years old with a check for like almost a million dollars to run a business. And I have no clue. I had come up with a technology idea. I was like, never done this before. I was just trying to share an idea. And now here I am sitting, trying to figure it out. Uh, it was probably, I always joke, I, I probably cried myself back to my hotel room that night. Like, what did I just sign up for? Maybe I should go to medical school, you know? And uh, it was painful trying to figure out how to build a business and a company. And and I struggled uh, the first couple of months, got just great coaching and mentoring from some leaders there. Um, and I was able to scale the business. And um I had another idea and I submitted the idea again. And at this point, uh, you know, it's like, it seems like you love this thing of you know, coming up with ideas and doing it. Why should we wait for a competition for you to share your idea? You know, just manage an innovation budget. And, you know, if you could think of an idea, just do it. And this was my first introduction into any formal discipline of innovation management or modern day product management. Um, and, uh, you know, I failed woefully at the next 18 ideas I had. I mean, talking, nobody went at anything I was coming up with after that. And I I was really forced into the discipline by trying to figure out what my early success was and why my, I was failing. Uh, I realized I was disconnected from customers. I was disconnected from the people building. I was making decisions from a conference room. Uh, these were very early insights. Um, now, I haven't had a single product failure in my career since that streak. Um, and I credit a lot of the techniques that I teach through Silicon Valley Product Group. A lot of the techniques you might read in any of our books, Inspired and, and Empowered. Uh, but I lent them the hard way. You know, I always tell Marty Kagan, like, really? You wrote a book after I failed? Like, seriously, where were you when I needed you kind of to write this book in this way? But, but, 
but I'm able to share with passion these techniques uh, because that was how I grew in the discipline through massive failure, through massive experimentation. Um, and I was able to join other companies in the space to run product, uh, lead transformation efforts at major companies. Uh, uh, you know, we're looking at counts of products that I have touched or built directly, uh, almost close to 200 products now uh, that I have been a part of building. So it's, um, you know, fortunately, there are not very many people that have worked as product people, built product uh, products in the world, led product teams, worked as product executives, transformed companies. And, and so we are able at, at SVPG to, to share stories or connect with people at different stages, whether they are individuals trying to figure this out or executives trying to figure out how to transform uh, an organization. And, and I think that's been really instrumental to uh, my ability to contribute to the brand and to what we're doing today. I, uh, I love the framing of sort of learning through doing and then uh, um, trying to help us all avoid some of those challenges. I, I, uh, I came up through my career in the product management world. That was sort of my journey into, into technology as well, sort of similar to yours in that when I get asked, like, how do you become a product manager? I always tell them everybody's story is entirely different and none of them start off with, I wanted to be a product manager. It's like, you, you know, your point, like you don't go to school and get a degree in it. Right. Uh, I always tell folks, if if you like being responsible for everything, but in charge of nobody, this is the job for you, right? It's, <laughs> it's sort of this really challenging sort of dynamic, yeah. uh, but it's also, an, it's a, it isn't uh, a role uh, in some ways, a, a sort of industry, if you will, or, or a, a career trajectory that has really changed a lot. Um, from when I started, I mean, it was sort of very waterfall, very different. It's very different now. Um, how do you think about the sort of evolution of the product leader role over the course of your career? I mean, it's it's a pretty interesting space just in terms of change. That's right. That's right. It's very different from the evolution of dance approaches. My kids and I were watching that. Like, it's it's absolutely look. I've seen product go from an unneeded discipline to an undefined one, to a necessary evil in some places, to poorly leveraged and unaccountable in companies, to now you see companies that just define themselves as we are a product company. I mean, it's spectacular to even see take native companies like, like Google or Instacart invest in um, APM programs to train and equip product managers. You see uh, colleges and universities scrambling to create curriculum and programs to teach the discipline. Um, you will see banks like I am working with like big banks, insurance companies, oil and gas companies. You know, you see like executives pitching shareholders that we want to become a product company. You know, um, and this discipline is growing. Was it like forty percent year over year? It's now the number one career path to startup CEO or co-founder in, in or founder in Silicon Valley. Graduates desire it now. Um, more than investment banks. Uh, it is almost a new book coming out every day on this thing. And um, so it is changing. Uh, um, it's it's scary how quickly it's changing. Um, it comes with its own nuanced challenges because what's clear about its evolution is that there's tremendous demand. Um, many companies have come to realize that the ways we've created value in the past will not meet the challenges of the future. Uh, they've come to realize that the pace of innovation is changing and that um, there are significant opportunities to truly look at a discipline that cares really about the choices we make and how we do things um, and, and uh, maybe accelerated by the likes of Amazon or, or Google in the world and uh, unicorns popping up every day and all of them not looking like 
companies that looked the way they did before. Um, so so I, I think in several ways, the evolution is accelerating. It, it is far from a, a very well-defined discipline. Like we will love it. Uh, I, I don't think I've met any two companies with the same definition of what uh, or expectation of what this discipline should be. Um, I, I I think we've we've tried very hard uh, as an organization to be clear about what good looks like, at least. <laughs> um, but that evolution is still an ongoing thing. Um, I do sense that the day we figure it out, there'll be something better <laughs> that we need to go after again. Uh, but I, I know that there's demand that it's disruptive in many companies uh, and it's yet to, to, to live on for at least the next decades or two. I, I think that's right. How do you, um, how do you coach people that want to go into the product discipline? I mean, like I said, it's a place where a lot of people don't know, like, what's the launching point for this? Uh, I liked your opening talking about, like, how do I go collect the background? It's sort of next to impossible. Yeah. Um, and then once you get a foot in the door, like, how do you grow as a product person? Like, how do you give people guidance on sort of developing product people? Like, what frameworks are best practices? Like, how do people, like, get good at doing this? This, this is one of those things that is super near and dear to my heart when I think about the discipline because um, unfortunately, the best product people I have met in the world have learned from great product leaders. Um, it's even more unfortunate that there are not very, very many great product leaders. Uh, it's a discipline, I think, uh, looking at some report that was like 70% of product people are self-taught, you know, and it sounds cool, but then you're like, you know, who goes to a self-taught dentist or like a self-taught doctor? Like, you know, uh, when you think about how mission critical the role is in an organization, you're like, really? And, you know, and I started to audit classes at universities and stuff. I was at one locally and a local tobacco company was teaching companies how to build products. I was like, okay, this is, we have a significant challenge um, in this space. Um, I, I do tell people kind of that I might advise that want to go into the discipline, uh, you know, you kind of describe your individual passions and who you are, you know, you, it was the opposite of Spider-Man kind of with great responsibility comes no power in some ways. You meet people that are just naturally, they love problems. They, they love to think about breaking problems. Uh, I see product managers in so many parts of the world, just everyday people. Uh, they just haven't been called that. They, you know, they may be called super mom sometimes in at home. They may be called, you know, amazing. You know, you see them in all these ways. And, and I try to invite them into the discipline uh, by tell, showing them that it's very much not different than them being able to truly understand the problems that they are doing today and how they approach stuff. So, so if you like solving problems, if you're intellectually curious, you love to work with people, you can recognize that the, the there's more power in the outcomes of creating value than in getting credit for it. Um, you are already probably the best fit for a product manager. And I tell people, don't, don't wait for a formal role to practice the discipline. Start today, uh, you, you know, because no one is going to teach you. I haven't met a single product manager that got hired at any company that someone was like, okay, great. We are going to, you know, they were going to give you three years where we're just going to watch you learn. They literally want you to start solving problems for them the day you arrive you know, throw you into a team. And, and that's unfortunate, but it's kind of the reality. So I tell people, you've got to build the muscle. I have found that uh, I've hired people just by being able to tell me a story of how they've solved the problem in their everyday life. 
And, 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 you know, while mine may be more complicated with more constraints in my environment, it's no different than your ability to just think through that and know what you need and who you need to, to do that. You know, my favorite interview question is always like, uh, you know, I, I have a friend that is hearing impaired and they've been, you know, deaf uh, uh, since birth. And, you know, he wants to get a new job uh, and, uh, he, you know, he struggles to wake up on time to go to this job. So, you know, traditional alarm clocks don't work. You know, my friend comes to you and they're like, yeah, uh, you know, I need to figure out how to wake up in the morning. And I just draw some kind of random problem like that to a person. And, and every answer tends to be okay for me, as long as you think through this, in the sense that, um, you know, people say, yes, I will interview your friend, find out what I'm like, that's great. Do you understand sign language? Like, oh, no. Okay. You know, or, you know, you, you, you and then I want to know what you need. I, I rather people just say, I don't know. Huh. I will ask for help. I will talk to people. I mean, those are, it's just the mindset of what do people say first? In many cases, people try to go straight to the solution. In many cases, people try to solve with some technology. And, and I respect the people that can see the problem for what it is, recognize they don't know and walk through it. So, so that's kind of how I get people into discipline. I just tell them to do it if, you're, if that's who you are. Um, in terms of coaching people, um, and developing product people. This one philosophically is super hard for me because it's, uh, I don't think people recognize as much in the world today that coaching is a job, right? It's it's almost like I am your manager, you know, and, and it's almost manager is a job for many people. And, you know, the job of coaching is the job of managers. It is such a hard thing to, you know, and, and and, and so lots of people miss the mark that's, you know, all great athletes, all great stars, all, they all have coaches. And unfortunately, because of the nature of who product people are, we see them as self-driven, independent people. They don't need help. They'll figure it out themselves, but they need to be coached. So as long as philosophically people understand that doing the job is your job, getting better at the job is the manager's job. It's so hard for me to even get this across to managers like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Janelle's job is to do the job, but getting better at that job is not her job. You know, because I see them tell her, oh, Janelle, go get better at public speaking. Really? If you think she could do it by herself, she would have done it already. Like this is literally your job to get her to competency and then to your potential. So, I mean, I, I, I even struggle coaching managers on one-on-ones because a one-on-one is like, tell me all the updates of all of the things you're doing and inform me. I'm like, no. This is sacred time for the development of a person, their personal and professional development. You know, it's like, well, what about my update? I say, if you care about the person, you will get the update. It's hard to care about Andy and not know what Andy cares about. You know, it's like, but, but it's, it's kind of the mindset around it. I say, well, you've got to also assess your people. You've got to know where they stand so that you can know what you need to work on to develop them. You have to build trust. You know, foundationally, you have to measure your success by their success not by your goals or outcomes. These are the foundational things I think uh, have to shift for good product leadership uh, to, to happen and uh, for us to build a continuum. I've mentioned that it's unfortunate because many leaders have not experienced good coaching themselves. So they don't even know what to pass on. You know, and it's so, so I, I do spend a ton of my time now with executives really coaching on how to coach. Uh, people and and changing their the, the mindset and the approach to it, um, and, and it, you know it's when you just stop caring about all your metrics and numbers, 
You know, that's that person's job to go deliver it. Your job is to develop that person so they are successful at their job. It's such a hard thing to wrap a mind. I see way too many leaders doing the job of their people than coaching their people to do the job. You know, and that's because we, we promote people just because they are competent at the job they are doing, not because they are competent at coaching people to do that job. That's, I, that's I completely so agree. <laughs> I, I always uh, I always feel like to uh, updates are always better with the team when you participate in the discussion with the team that that person's leading about what it is they're all working on and coaching is much better when you can talk to the person individually. So I'm always amazed people spend their one on one time doing their status updates. I think I think that's well said. Uh, and I love your view on on people who are problem solvers. I've told people in the past, my father was a industrial engineer, and I always felt like his job was a product manager job just at a factory. You know, his job was to think about the whole thing and felt like what's not working and solve problems. It's it's really kind of the same role. But to your point, like with a formal discipline, like you go to school to be an industrial engineer. And I, I hope at some point we uh, we arrive at that place with uh, with product folks. We, we have a ways to go still, but uh, yeah. it is it is a fun and emerging area. Awesome. So you touched on this a little bit, Christian, in the beginning when um, you were talking about some of your early failures were when you were sitting in a conference room making decisions, maybe with the team or on your own without talking to customers. And so, uh, and then you also just mentioned in your uh, interviews with product managers, you sometimes ask them about, you know, how to solve a problem and, and um, you really want them to focus on what the problem is versus going straight into solutioning. So I'm curious on two things. One is your perspective on customer input and feedback as you develop product. And the second piece is in this world of COVID uh, and this this remote world we've been living in for 15 months plus, how do product teams stay close to customers? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll start with your, your the letter question because it's, uh, it's one that I, I see more often now. Um, often, unfortunately, many product people have created mental obstacles or barriers for not engaging with customers. Uh, and, and I often have to humanize customers again by reminding them that they are also customers of some of the biggest companies in the world. Like, you know, hey, you know, Google would like to talk to you. Have you run a Google search lately? You are such a valuable person to them. And like customers are truly just humans. And, and you know, kind of remind them about that. So, you know, I, first, I mean, the argument I typically make for like uh, customer-centric design is I tell people, look, the path to value is solving problems for customers in a meaningful way. You cannot realize that path without a deep knowledge of the customer. Uh, the path to magic or what people might call a, a unicorn you know, is actually uncovering the latent or hidden needs of customers. And you definitely cannot realize that without user-centric or, or, or customer design. Now, when it comes to doing discovery in this current environment, I have actually found more success in doing discovery in the pandemic. I know where my customers are. I have spoken to way more CEOs in the last year than I have ever in my career. They are not on flights to Japan or China or so. No, you know, Bob, you're at home. You know, you just came back from you watching your daughter scream at you. You want to talk to me. I am a great escape. You want the excuse of coming to talk to me. You know, the, you know all of the tools that felt very disruptive and interruptive in the past are just all pedestrian today. 
I, I mean, uh, given your your organization, you just imagine telling like some leader, you know, spend two hours with me on some two. You are on Zoom all day long. You are playing with collaborative tools. These had just become an everyday thing for us. Um, and so it's more welcome. More importantly, what I found is that there's now a common bond that unites everybody, right? Um, in that we have common challenges today. We have a pandemic that we all can relate to. Um, we have questions of what are we doing with our kids at home? What do we watch on Netflix? You know, How do we help our companies thrive in this environment or after this season? It's, it's actually easier to bond with customers regardless of what you're working on. You know, what either the industry is, we can all connect. Like, we are all at home. See, you know, I'm not asking you questions about your office and stuff. We are all in the same place. We are all seeing uh, issues that affect all of us equally. So it's actually a very welcomed experience to, uh, because you can share common challenges and start with something that unifies you. You know, I, I, I often remind companies and teams like, look, your customers don't care about you. They don't care about your company. They only care about you to the extent that you solve your problems. And so, you know, fortunately for us today, we all have common problems that unite all of us. So you're welcomed to start a conversation, a meaningful dialogue with people um, in today's environment, actually much easier than we were before because we were so busy in the doing in the past. And now it feels like these problems were almost. So I have found the tools um, that we use to do research or do discovery have been more welcomed today than they ever have. I have found that the audience and our customers are more willing to share uh, their stories, their narrative with us. Um, I, I, have, I have found that uh, gathering customer feedback on things actually become more important because everybody uh, kind of has that same lagging thought of, what happens after this? What changes after this? What stays the same? You know, the, the new normal is maybe a little of the old normal, just accelerated. And so it's it's really fun to do discovery in this environment. I, I tell people, humanize your approaches, focus on the reality, don't ignore uh, the conditions your customers are in. It, in, it creates a, acceptance of, of uh, in the discussion and really drives meaningful outcomes. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, what's interesting is that the way that you describe the sort of rise of the product discipline, it, it reminds me a lot, actually, of the rise of the UX, UX discipline, right? Where like they're both sort of like kind of coming to the forefront. And you've probably been in conversations where or seen teams, because I personally have kind of struggle between what's the line between UX and product, and or better put, how do these two teams work together? And so um, like a lot of the things that you're talking about in terms of staying close to customers and having conversations with them, when you talk to some, some teams, the UX person feels like they own that part of, yeah. of the job or, or the yeah. sort of the, of that part of creating the product. So I think you know what I'm getting at. I would I, love I, to I, understand, like, how do you look at that? How, how, what do you think about sort of that tension between those two groups? There's a there's a lot of job to go around. Um, there, there is a, and often uh, that tension uh, I see comes from one or two things. Um, it uh, it's driven by a lack of understanding of the roles, um, kind of, uh, um, and what the roles are meant to contribute in how they solve the problem or actually uh, not being able to identify the strengths 
that those people are bringing uh, to the work. And, you know, um, unfortunately, people might look at design as the people that just make things look pretty. Um, and I really try to argue about they own how people experience the value of the product that's, that you might have. And, and it's very hard for people to imagine it. You know, I always say like, oh, you know, uh, it's like, Andy, you know, how much you think like a Honda Accord will cost? Well, $30,000. But like, what about a Rolls Royce? It's like $300,000. I say, okay, Andy, um, you're sitting in your Honda. I'm sitting in my Rolls Royce. We have to go to the airport from the same place. How long would it take us to get there? It's like the exact same time. And I said, all right, you paid 10 times more for your Rolls Royce than I did. And in solving the problem, we are right there at the same time. Why did you pay 10 times more? And I'd be like, well, you know, is it the letter in the Rolls Royce? Is it the umbrella? Is it the way it makes me feel? Is it how it looks? Is it, 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 the answer is yes to every single thing you come up with. And that is what design contributes. It's not, it's not just the look and feel. It's not just how it walks. It's not how it drives. It's, not, it's the totality of how I experience the value. It's the difference between I'm going to pay for this and it's free. I like this versus I love this. You know, we, we, you see uh, the cost of design, that recent article uh, with Citibank um, losing almost half a billion dollars in, in design. Those things kind of bring to the surface, you know, like, okay, maybe there's something to do with this, you know? Look, value is important. I, I tell that to product teams. Unfortunately, product managers don't recognize that value is the most important thing to establish. And so they see a usability test as a test for value. And they are two different things. Uh, um, you know, the, the design shapes the, 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 the engineering in some ways and the engineering shapes the design, the, 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 the experience may be more important to your success, but will people buy this? Will people choose to use it? Is very different than can they use it? And I say, you know, when I see that, struggle happen, um, I do ask the product manager those questions. And I say, look, your designer has done a great job of making sure people can use this. You know, you need to tackle the job of will they buy it and will they choose it? And if you don't think that that's significant enough <laughs> to tackle, nobody wants to work on things that people don't want. And so often I, I try to clarify the importance of product management is to ensure that we are creating value for customers in a way that works for our business. The value that the designer brings is to ensure that what we create, people can use it, to ensure that the experience, that value that has been created. The job of engineering is to ensure that we can build it. We know the best way to build it. And it's impossible for us to truly create products customers love without all three people working as one. You know, and I and I use the team analogy like this. You no, know, there's enough to go around. You can't have a team of quarterbacks and expect to win the Super Bowl, or a team of just uh, wide receivers. At some point, you need to hike and throw the ball. Someone needs to catch it, and that's what the team does. You need each other to be successful. Yeah, it's a great way to to think about the the sort of relationship that all those players have to have together. Yeah, really good. One of the things that I I think about uh, when we're talking with customers and sort of out, out and, and learning about, you know, what teams are working on is sort of some teams that are kind of struggling with, do we just follow best practices for this particular experience? Like, you know, there's a library of things that are like, you know, this is how you design a checkout flow, right? And like, you probably shouldn't veer off of that because people are so used to it. But 
is there an opportunity to innovate and maybe make it better or different? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess my question is how, how should teams think about that? How should they think about when is it okay to stick with best practices and standards versus when is the, when should we think about opportunities to do things differently? Yeah, it, it's a bad question to ask a cowboy or like, you know, <laughs> uh, I am, I am, I, I, I am probably the worst person and probably a, a little extreme end when it comes to disruptive innovation and, and behavior. Look, I, I see innovation as truly a factor of the number of attempts and tries you can have and of technology that is just now possible. In, in principle, I argue that no one needs permission to innovate. You don't need permission to think about new problems to solve, new ways to solve existing problems, new markets, new customers, new opportunities, new ways to add value. It is unfortunate that process, structure, role definitions, and management just tend to stifle innovation in many organizations uh, because, you know, you get people that will tell me, well, I am not on the innovation team. I said, it's an innovation team? Yes. I'm like, so does that mean everybody that is not on it is on the non-innovation team or I'm not on the growth team or I'm not a product manager? You know, uh, uh, in, in some ways, you know, it's not my job to innovate. Look, I was just in an airport in another country and uh, you know, I was going through security and the security people had created this amazing, they put this little like kids balloon comb over the security dome and they played music as people passed through it. And I'm like, turned to the people like, wow, why, who, who, who asked you all to do this? Like, did it? He's like, no, nobody did. We just kept seeing people walking through security, feeling very nervous and uneasy. And it's our job to make people feel safe, not our job to make people feel unsecure about going to the airport. And so we just figured we would try something to put people at ease while they are going through this experience. And, you know, now I'm, I was super impressed that they were at an environment where they felt empowered to try something safely in there. But more importantly, that they did not feel they needed permission to see a problem or to figure out some process or check mark or stuff like this. Now, did it get people through security in the same way? Was it safe and secure? Like the machine is still the same. They just put nice balloons and stuff around it. You know, it did not diminish the quality of the, the technology. It just improved the experience of going through it. And so, you know, I believe some, you know, companies need to scale. They need structure and stuff so that they can ensure that there's consistency and quality in the air. Um, but for me, more importantly, it's mindset. I, I like to equip teams with very many techniques. I, I tell them, I cannot teach you a process because the second you're working on something different and you'd be like, it doesn't fit and it doesn't work or, or tooling, you know, or unfortunately I meet people who's like, you're trying to teach a technique and they focus on the tool. The tool is not doing this. That's not the point. We want the work done. It's meant to just help you do it. And so I often love to give teams a tremendous amount of options and techniques um, and, and encourage them that, you know, in an empowered environment, I want to tell you why we're doing things and what problems we have. And I want you to feel safe enough to try as many things as you can to solve the problem. And we don't get better unless you, you can innovate on my process. You're actually welcome to do that. Um, if that's what you want to do, because you don't see it working. Um, it's less of, you know, the process is not the outcome we want. It's just to enable us get consistent results out of the work that we do. Um, and so I think it's, uh, as long as that's clear, 
to teams, um, then you can build a culture with process. If it's not, I rather you just go crazy. Just, you know, uh, because I, I, I rather deal with trying to structure success than me being a barrier to success. You know, like everybody following a process, but nothing good comes out of it. Uh, in some ways, or best practice or standard. There are proven practices. There are techniques that work well. I want you to know all of them because you may find that one works better for one reason or another. So it's really about empowering your teams. Yeah, I love that. So thinking about it in a way where the teams actually, well, to your to use your words, empower to make the decision. Yes. Uh, whether or not to stick with the standard or, or push to innovate. That's great. We're going to move into the lightning round. So um, these are just four quick questions, uh, whatever pops uh, into mind, feel free to share. So we'll start with uh, this first one here. So uh, what's a book that you've recently read that you'd recommend to listeners? I just finished uh, No Rules Rules by Reed Hastings and Aaron Meyer, kind of the Netflix thing. It, It really reinforces this idea of, you know, lead by context, not control. Uh, in some ways, which is the basis for empowered teams. Um, you know, it's it, it's good to see it well articulated, kind of what it looks like in a company at scale, um, because often everybody argues, oh, we're not small, you know, we're, we're not that startup anymore. This never work at this big company. Uh, but you can see culture and mindset permeate even as a company grows and they have flexibility to adopt that and learn from it. So, so that's... Uh, that's a book that I have enjoyed reading. I um, still in the midst of reading this book, but I've just really loved it. It was actually recommended uh, by another partner, um, Cast, uh, The Origins of Our Discontent. Uh, it's by Isabel Wilkinson. Um, it's uh, really a phenomenal narrative on the underpinnings of discontent uh, in the world. And um, given the light of some of the social issues that we're facing today, it, it really try to go much deeper into what may be driving a lot of the discord and, and separation. And um, it's been a fun read. I've just been marinating on it uh, as I go through it. Awesome. It sounds like two, two great recommendations. I haven't heard of that second one. I'll have to certainly check it out. All right. A piece of advice that you would give to someone um, trying to convince others to invest in customer centricity. Oh, uh, just make cupcakes. Um, <laughs> You know, look, uh, there is, um, I don't think I've struggled uh, with that. It's, um, you know, you do have sometimes to to remind people that you are not your own customer in some ways. And, um, and and like I mentioned before, like you can't do anything remarkably well in the world um, without creating value for, for other people. And so if you, if whatever you're trying to do is not for you and you're trying to create value for other people, you need to know those people. You need to spend time and invest time in having a deep knowledge of understanding. You need to validate along the way, every step that, that this is really a problem they have. It's really a problem what's solving and that the solution you've come up with actually solves the problem. It's great what you think, but what you think doesn't sell the product to everybody else. What sells the product to everybody else, everybody else thinking what you want them to think, right? And, and, I, and I always have to, uh, to remind people about and show them examples of amazing companies in the world and even show them things that uh, uh, people were not sure about how to articulate themselves, you know, how to even describe the problem themselves and that companies that invested in truly trying to uncover the, the hidden needs or the unarticulated needs of customers 
have led to great solutions in the world um, and, and your Ubers and your, you know, those kinds of things. And I, and I describe that to kind of call people out. This is why we focus on customer centric design. This is why we care about customers. On one end, we want to define and identify their problems. On one end, we are not solving the problems for ourselves. <laughs> and so we need them to validate that we actually have solved the problem. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This makes me think of there's a example, and I think it, Jeff Bezos's shareholder letter, yeah. where he says, if we would have asked people if they wanted a speaker in the shape of a Pringles can that sat on their counter, that they could ask what the weather was and other questions, like people probably would have just said no. Right. Right. Because people don't know what they want. Yes. Yes. Customers, you, 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 them, you know, Steve Jobs used to say the same thing. Nobody asked for the iPhone. You know, in fact, when, when BlackBerry, Nokia, Motorola, they were all doing focus groups. People said, lose the touchscreen. Who wants a touchscreen? We hate that stuff. Don't lose the keyboard. We all loved our little palm trio and stuff back then. And Apple spent, you know, three and a half years trying to build the best touchscreen device. You know, um, it's such a, you know, Bezos says the same thing in, in those newsletters too. Like the, the number one mistake you can make is listening to your customers. And the second biggest mistake you can make is not listening to your customers, right? With the argument about like, you know, you're not looking to them to tell you what to build, but you need a deep understanding of them to understand the problems and to make sure that you're solving them in a meaningful way. I cannot, I cannot stress that enough. Um, every magical product I have built in the world comes because in some shape, form or fashion, I could have a name in the back of my head every single day for who I was solving that problem for. Just a face, a name, every time I'm at work, you know, and, and you know, just understanding at scale, there are millions of people that look like that person um, truly being a secret to success here. Yeah, absolutely. I will tell you too, I would totally would have been one of those people that uh, in that focus group that would have said, don't take away my keyboard. I used to be able to like type on that, like nobody's business, like look away, just, yeah. Um, I've gotten used to the touchpad now, but, uh, or the touch screen, but (laughs) all right. So a recent great experience that you've had, um, and in your opinion, what, what made it so great? Mm. (laughs) Um, Oh, what comes to mind? Yeah, look, I, I have an absolutely witty and uh, remarkably sharp 10-year-old daughter uh, who, who constantly manages, uh, you know, maybe better put, challenges my work-life balance. Um, you know, the, the other day I was, um, I just finished uh, three consecutive weeks of training product teams and, uh, and she comes in and I'm super exhausted and, and just burnt out and I'm like, oh, I've got to jump on another call. And, she, you know, and she's like, why do you keep going when you're tired? You know, and I try to argue and rationalize like, all right, you know, get a break. I got to get these things done. And she says to me, even a cell phone knows to turn itself off when it runs out of battery. And it struck a remarkably deep chord for me. It was like, what do you mean by this? Are you saying I'm not smarter than a cell phone in one way, you know, and and she's like, you know, it runs out of battery and it knows to tell itself, cut off. And unless you plug me back into the wall, and even when you do that, it doesn't magically turn right back on. It takes its time to rebuild some stuff before it comes back on. And, you know, it, and I, I, I literally at that point just said, you know what, I'm canceling my meetings the rest of the day. 
And, I, you know, it was one of those, I can make the choice to turn off in some ways. Um, and, and I'm one of those people that will, you know, like to keep going to get it all done and then feel like I'm deserving of the break in some ways. And, uh, and it truly is advice now I just even give people just based on my 10-year-old giving me this great moment of, of remarkable insight. So that was just a recent great experience. It still lingers with me. Still a work in progress, but I try not to let her see me walk in so that she doesn't find more ways to slap me on the head, but it's good. Yeah, I love that. The per- that perspective that you kind of get shocked with every now and then from your children or even just from, even if they're not your your own children, yeah. just younger people who see the world a little bit differently. Yes. Yes. That's so valuable. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the future. So uh, when you think about the future of product, I mean, you've talked about the evolution of the product world it feels in some sense, in some senses, and in some ways that we're kind of just getting started. So the future of product, like, what do you think about that? And, and like, what are you most excited about? Oh, man. I feel like I am living out all of my childhood sci-fi movies, you know, like all of the things that we all thought we're like a hundred years away, you know, like you watch those little movies. I mean, we're talking self-driving cars, uh, people wanting to go to Mars. Like, seriously, we're seeing pictures and sound from Mars, you know, the rise of the machines and AI, the role of technology becoming ubiquitous. I mean, these are like Jetson movies in front of us. You know, I mean, we, we would have argued, I think as kids, like when, if I had asked you the quiz, when do you think casual, like, ah, 2150, I mean, all the movies even had like timelines like that, you know, in the distant future. And these are things that we are getting to experience, you know, all around the world. You know, uh, I'm like in communities in Africa with the balloon internet, with over 90% cell phone uh, penetration, a connected world, uh, a range of possibilities. Uh, the cycle time for innovation is getting shorter and shorter, right? Like it's, it, so, you know, I am most excited about the role of technology in our lives and uh, the, our ability to leverage it in more meaningful ways than ever before to solve problems. This is uh, probably the most exciting thing. I, I you know, part of my call back uh, in this realization is, you know, I, 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 when I travel to South America or to Africa, I used to have this false assumption that, yeah, we have it in America, so it must be everywhere. And then, you know, you go back to communities and you're just like, whoa, people still find jobs in a newspaper. You know, I was like, oh, I, I solved that problem in like 2001. You know, like, is it still a real thing here? You know, um, I, and you start to really get excited about the role of technology in, in every part of the world and all of the things it could do. So it is probably uh, um, the most exciting thing about product is that we, we will never run out of new companies trying to solve old problems in new ways. <laughs> um, they, it, is, it is that career security of, you know, there are always problems. Actually, most problems are not even new, but technology is evolving so quickly and fast now that, boy, I, I can't wait to see, you know, why are we driving? You know, we can just teleport. Why not? You know, I mean, those are the kinds of things that are like, uh, just make the work of product super exciting. Yeah, lots of lots of exciting uh, innovation and opportunity for sure. I mean, you like to your point, you start, and we have started to see some of, of this stuff pop up already. It'll be interesting to see what the world is like in 10, 20 years yeah. beyond. Thanks so much, Christian, for joining us. This has been awesome. 
really inspiring and a lot of fun. Yeah, always, always. Yeah, great perspectives. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. Thanks for having me. Want to keep the conversation going? You can visit our podcast hub, usertesting.com slash podcast and check out past episodes. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Overcast, or Google Play, so you can never miss a good episode. And if you enjoyed today's show, please share it with a friend or leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts.